Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen, here to navigate one of the roughest seas in global politics, Russia. December marks the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Soviet Union, and we'll want to dive deep into this fascinating country's outside power, surprisingly weak economy, and its power relationships with the rest of the world. Joining us is Julia Yoffe, one of the most knowledgeable and controversial voices on the subject. Yes, Mooney, modern Russia turns 30 years old in December. Indeed, it's now 30 years since the fall of the Soviet Union and reformist Mikhail Gorbachev handed power to Boris Yeltsin. It's also the 30th year that McDonald's is selling Big Macs in Moscow. The USSR lasted almost 80 years, geographically covering a huge chunk of the world and affecting every corner of the world. 1991 marked the end of the Cold War and, of course, the promising end to proxy wars and threats of nuclear disaster. At least that's what we thought back in 1991. And this last lowering of the hammer and sickle of the Kremlin came also with the dismantling of communism across Eastern Europe, across the Caucasus, and much of Central Asia. It also left the U.S. as the sole superpower and the market economy and liberal democracy was upon us as the prevailing system going to last for the rest of mankind. Well, I guess it didn't turn out that way. Well, so much hope and change, Peter. But Russia's honeymoon with the West was short-lived. It has once again become an inward-looking, retrenched authoritarian nation, and it is again one of the West's principal antagonists. Today, Russia faces multiple challenges internally and with its relationships around the world. An excellent interpreter of opportunity Vladimir Putin has with a very few bold moves in Crimea and the Middle East, for example, catapulted Russia forward as a world power. Of late, Putin has been strategic in rebuilding some self-interested relationships, namely with Europe and China. Just, just think about it for a second. Younger Russians know only Putin in power. He dominates the scene completely, but of late, we're seeing some chinks in his armor. For example, Putin's arch rival, Alexander Navalny, used technology to urge younger Russians to imagine a more open and democratic Russia. And, you know, let's listen to Taya and her take on the under 30 generations of Russia who were born after the Soviet Union, what they think, what they're doing now, and how they might shape the future. Hi, I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So youth in Russia is increasingly apathetic and removed from the Kremlin's orbit. Navalny's use of social media to organize his supporters against Putin is really a clear sign that something is brewing underneath the surface of Putin's total control. And unless you've been following Russia's domestic political environment very closely, you may be very shocked at what I'm about to tell you. And what I want to talk about is the rise of Russian communism as we commemorate 30 years since the fall of the Soviet Union. With leftism advancing in much of the rest of the world, really, it's striking how long it's taken to come into vogue in Russia, particularly given the inequality that Putin's rule has created. But now, six years of falling incomes have promptly, many, many Russians are reconsidering the politics on the left. The Kremlin is directing Soviet-style repression against young communists, and they're trying to paint them as Stalinists. 
And indeed, the Communist Party itself is led by Gennady Zuganov, a Stalin-praising former Soviet ideologue. But many young politicians running on the party's ticket are using it as a platform from which to launch their own left-wing agenda. And there's many of these young politicians. Many Russian Democrats right now, there are some of them left, are desperate to get Putin out of the Kremlin, and they find themselves voting for the communists. In September's parliamentary elections, the Communist Party won 19% of the vote, and that's up from 13% in 2016. And they, many say that was a rigged election, so you can only imagine what the real percentage was. So what do you think? Do the new communists, quote-unquote, actually stand a chance in Russia? Tweet at Altamar Podcast and let us know. Yeah, this is true. A new generation is coming, but it's impossible not to be impressed with the authoritarian colossus that Putin has built over 20 of the last 30 years of post-Soviet history. Russia, whose economy is equal to Portugal, so we all think it's a huge economy. It's not. Produces little more than oil and gas. And yet Russia's influence on the world grows unabated. It's known how to manipulate the few levers of power that it has very wisely, and it has used that oil and gas power to grow its influence in Western Europe. Military power to expand its clout in the Middle East and Ukraine, and very clever diplomatic moves to create a strategic interest with China against the United States. But yet we're all wondering, and so many articles have been written about what happens to Russia post-Putin. He's built a politically relevant and often threatening superpower on the shoulders of the weak economy that you just described, Mooney. He's cracked down on dissent ruthlessly, often sending hit teams to kill outspoken Russian dissidents who live in the West. Russia's pitiful economy is still controlled by a close band of Putin acolytes who've become these incredibly outsized oligarchs, and there's just no succession plan, no sense of what happens in Russia when Putin lives power. So what's going to happen to the world's biggest country? And let's ask our guest, Julia Yaffe, correspondent at PAC, former staff writer at The Atlantic and former Russia correspondent for The New Yorker. She's a leading authority on Russian-U.S. relations. She has years of in-depth reporting in Russia and provides important context about the country. Born in Moscow and a graduate of Princeton University and a participant in Columbia Journalism School's Case Studies Initiative, Julia Yaffe won a Fulbright scholarship to return to Russia in 2009, where she worked as Moscow correspondent for the New Yorker magazine, as well as foreign policy. Julia, welcome to Altamar. It's a pleasure to have you on the show for the first time. Thank you so much for having me. So we've all been talking about this big story. It's been 30 years since the fall of the Soviet Union. What's been the global impact of that event, that fall? Well, first, I can't believe it's been 30 years already. But I think that the global impact first, you know, the was the independence of the constituent republics of the Soviet Union and the economic collapse that it triggered, in part because the system was already bankrupt and because the independence of these republics create basically fractured a unified, if ill-functioning, economy. So it created a lot of hardship in many of these republics that became independent states. And then globally, it kind of removed Russia for a long time from the global stage as a power broker. And as a counterbalance, as some would say, to the U.S., 
or as I guess proponent uh, allies of the U.S. would say, a kind of stick in the eye of the U.S. So from the Russian point of view and from the point of view of Putin, as he's talked about it frequently, it became uh, what he called a unipolar world where there was just one country, the U.S., making all the decisions basically for everybody else. And because of that, Putin made it his, when he came to power in 1999, made it his objective, which he spelled out quite openly, to reestablish Russia as a counterweight and a counterbalance to the U.S. and to create a multipolar world where the U.S. doesn't have that much unlimited power. And and that kind of struggle to regain, for Russia to regain its standing on the world stage has created a lot of friction for the US and a lot of conflict all over the world. And we'll get to that conflict without a doubt, but just staying more philosophically, I mean, what's the legacy of the USSR for the rest of the world and how is the USSR seen by Russians today? Oof, that's quite a question. I think the legacy of the USSR for the rest of the world, at least in the short term, I think it was seen as a kind of final discreditation of communism and socialism as a functional and viable or even desirable system of government. Yeah, I think it was seen as the kind of triumph of the liberal democratic free market system over the communist socialist vision. And I think people in the West assumed that that was it. That was the final victory. And this question would never be revisited, that this was the kind of the final result that the system of government introduced, you know, the the kind of Anglo-Saxon or even continental European system was the ideal way to run a country and really the only moral way to run a country. And that that question would never be revisited. In doing prep for this episode, I've been reading a lot about the growth and support for the young Russian communists, let's call them. The Kremlin is trying to paint them as Stalinists, but they're framing themselves as politicians in favor of human rights, and they're standing up against Putin's crackdown against opposition. What do you make of this, Julia? So I think Russia has not really dealt with its history, with its very traumatic history which was the 70-year experiment that was the Soviet Union. This has been brilliantly addressed by writers like Svetlana Alexievich in Secondhand Time. She won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2015 for her work dealing with just this. And I think because there was no lustration in the Soviet Union there were the way there was in some former Warsaw Pact countries like Czechoslovakia and you know, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, there was a lot of room left in Russia to rewrite that history over and over and over again. You're seeing it now with the Kremlin trying to completely disband and dissolve the organization, the NGO called Memorial, which was the first civic organization formed in the Soviet Union during the Perestroika era that was a way to chronicle and document the crimes of the Stalin era. And as Putin has rehabilitated Stalin and Stalinism and has portrayed him as an effective manager, and what, I, you know, what I've heard from younger people in Russia who are obviously getting this in school and kind of regurgitating this, is 
And I literally had this conversation, I think the last time I was in Russia with a school-age kid, and he said, well, look, Stalin brought electricity to this vast country. He modernized it. He industrialized this backward agrarian country. And like, yeah, there were some, you know, he went overboard sometimes. And like, yes, he killed 5,000 people, but he did modernize the country. And I was like, wait, what? 5,000 people? <laughs> I think you need to add a couple of zeros there. And, you know, that's the version that's being handed down in, in Russia. It has been essentially criminalized to question Stalin's decisions in World War II, for example. And it's seen as a good history. The Soviet Union was a good thing. We were an important and powerful empire and we had to be reckoned with. And I think they've succeeded in rehabilitating it, unfortunately. Julia, you talked about the former republics of the Soviet Union, and now some of them have uh, kind of fallen on the side of EU and NATO. Others have lent to Asia. Who have been, if you were to simplify, the winners and losers of this breakdown? I would say, I mean, the Baltics have definitely been winners. They were pretty quickly accepted into the EU and NATO, and I think they feel the protection of that very strongly. And being in the EU has certainly raised living standards in those uh, former Soviet republics. I think that wasn't much of a stretch for them because, you know, they were annexed forcefully in 1939. It wasn't, and they hadn't been part of the Soviet Union quite as long as Russia, for example, or Ukraine. I think Georgia has been a winner in this. They have, you know, even with ups and downs and struggles and political vicissitudes, they, they're still, you know, they're a thriving democracy and they're still kind of charting their way forward, even though they've had a big chunk of their territory bitten off by Russia. I would say that Ukraine was emerging as a winner, but now it's kind of bogged down in a war with Russia, a kind of frozen conflict that periodically threatens to become hot again. Uh, as we're recording this, you know, there's a big buildup of Russian troops on the border with Ukraine and Nobody really knows what that's about or what that's for, though. Pretty much nobody thinks uh, Putin's actually going to invade. I think Central Asian republics have become Central Asian countries are kind of all over. I think Kazakhstan has done really well, even though it's basically an autocracy. Turkmenistan has become this kind of almost North Korean style fiefdom uh, with its own weird the like governing theology. And places like, you know, Tajikistan, which borders Afghanistan, is feeling kind of the destabilizing effects of everything happening over the border. I think it's, you know, it's all over the map, literally. So one question that always is on any analysis about Russia is how do you explain the fact that it's a small economy? based on a couple of different industries, no innovation or very little innovation, so economically weak and, and outsized political power and stature in the global table to the point that it is almost still considered a superpower. Well, it certainly considers itself a superpower. And I think Russia shows that you don't have to be an economic powerhouse to be a superpower. You just have to kind of have the will and the history and the the vision of yourself as an empire. And Russians will openly tell you this, that Russia is a natural empire. It can only exist as an empire. And 
Russians will talk about, you know, how they want to be part of an empire and that, you know, even if milk is more expensive or goods are more expensive because they're all imported, still they live in an empire and that feels nice. And they'll sacrifice material comforts for that. Russia, I think, has forced its way back onto the stage as a major power player because it's still a massive nuclear power. And, you know, because of what it inherited from the Soviet Union, but also what's it, what it's reinvested in updating and modernizing that nuclear force. Also in modernizing and growing its military significantly and then showing that it will use it in very kind of sneaky, deviant ways, like in Ukraine, like in Georgia. And then also, you know, outsourcing that occasionally when it's politically expedient to private mercenary companies, which makes Russia both a player on the global stage in places like the Central African Republic or Libya or Syria or Madagascar, but with without the fingerprints. And also, you know, the operations of its intelligence forces in doing things like fomenting and adding fuel to the Catalan independence movement in Spain, for example, or stoking fires in the Balkans or interfering in America's elections, which is like, wow, you know, that is like, that's really punching the big guy in the face, right? So, you know, if you just, if you're willing, it, they've, they've shown that if you're willing to use your resources to just build up your army and your forces and you and you show that you're willing to use them a lot you know and to and to send agents with military grade nerve agent into the UK and kill a UK citizen on UK soil you know people will have to deal they may not respect you i think the i think that putin has figured this out a long time ago and made his peace with it that he's never he's never going to be loved in the West, but being feared is just as good, if not better for him. And then about the economy, I think one of the things that Putin has shown is that it's enough. You know, what he has is enough in terms of what's in the ground, the oil, the gas, the diamonds, the gold, the potash, the like precious metals. It's enough. It's enough for his guys. And I think one of the frustrations of educated Russians is that is what you said, that there's very little innovation, but that they don't feel really needed or wanted by their country, that they just, that Russia really only needs, you know, maybe a million people to work in those industries and keep them humming. And everybody else, if they want to leave, that's totally fine by Putin, you know, and that's very much the sense that they are given. Like, if you don't like it, leave. We don't really need you anyway. You're just causing more trouble. As long as our oil and gas workers go to work, we're fine. And we can absorb sanctions again, because that pain is worth it for us in our calculations. That economic is worth it for the geopolitical gains that we're seeing. That's a tough indictment. Let's move on to the quickly to the rest of the world and beginning. Let's start with Europe, Russia's relationship with Europe. Western Europe, I'm talking about, has been pretty much a seesaw. How do you see this going? And particularly, you've had this Nord Stream pipeline as really what the fulcrum of the seesaw. Where, where do you where do you see that heading? I think it's harder for Western Europe than it is for the U.S. to deal with 
Russia and even the U.S. isn't dealing with Russia pretty well. Uh, this current administration has basically made its peace with the fact that Putin isn't going anywhere and that there will really only maybe be a chance to change Russia in any way or have some kind of productive discourse once Putin is gone, thanks to death or you know some kind of succession scheme. And it's fine and easy for the U.S. to kind of wait Putin out because we don't have much economic ties with the Russians and we can just kind of play whack-a-mole with them geopolitically at relatively little cost. For Western Europe, it's a lot harder. They're physically closer. They are more economically connected to Russia, you know, and now becoming more so with the impending opening of Nord Stream 2. And we're seeing the effects of that, for example, on the border between Belarus and Poland and Lithuania, two EU countries that used to be under Moscow's sway. And Belarus, of course, being a former Soviet Republic, it's not it's not Russia, but Lukashenko feels clearly very emboldened by Putin's support for his crackdown in Belarus. And his government is going to was going to the Middle East, recruiting refugees, migrants, and then shipping them to the border to Poland, Lithuania to kind of test the EU, right? To test its migrant policy, which has been a major sore spot for the EU and arguably cost it the UK with Brexit, right? So, you know, and then it has to deal with Ukraine also on its borders and what happens if a war breaks out there. And in 2014, when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, there was constant speculation if they would invade the Baltic countries next. And what would that mean? Because they actually are NATO countries and EU countries. What would it mean? Would the US and Germany and France, and at the time Britain, send troops to die for Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia? You know, like the, these are questions that they constantly have to grapple with that the US can move to the back burner more easily than Western Europe can. What about China? Russia and China have formed bonds on very important geopolitical agenda items, the Arctic, the conquest of space, these large infrastructure projects that they're partnering in. What is the kind of the backstory of this relationship and what are the implications? Well, the backstory is, you know, the Soviet Union or Moscow used to see China as its little brother in revolution. And Mao Zedong hated that and stuck it to Khrushchev as often as he could, and then kind of broke away from the Soviet Union's influence and charted its own path, especially as the Soviet Union collapsed. I think China learned a lot of lessons from that about what you liberalize first, the economy or, or the politics, or if you liberalize them at all. I think from the Russian side, I don't know the Chinese side nearly as well. But from the Russian side, it's very complicated because a lot of it is also racially tinged. I don't think Russians view Chinese people with much respect. And I think they think they're funny and like they speak funny and they eat weird things, etc. But they understand that they're a big and rising power. And I would argue the point that they actually they don't like that China's getting involved in the Arctic. You know, China's called itself a near Arctic or like Arctic adjacent country. And Russia sees the Arctic as its own and doesn't want anyone in there, like Canada or the US, let alone China. I think they they feel like they can partner with China to 
screw over the U.S. <laughs> but I don't know that they want to play second fiddle to the Chinese the way the Chinese would want them to, because it seems like Beijing really looks down on Russia as much as Russia looks down on China. So I think there's, I don't think there's as much affinity there as people in the West think. And there are definitely some inherent tensions that will definitely spill out in the future. I mean, one of my favorite examples was right after 2014, when the the West sanctioned Russia very heavily for its invasion of Ukraine and its illegal annexation of Crimea. Uh, Russia finally got moving on uh, an, a gas pipeline to China, and it had been stalled in negotiations for years because the Chinese government drove a very, very hard bargain, and the Russian government was not used to dealing with that. It was used to, you know, dealing with Western Europeans, like caving to them, and so this negotiations were stalled. Now that Russia wanted to stick it to the US for sanctioning it, they went forward with building this gas pipeline to China, where they basically, A, built the entire thing on their own dime, and were essentially paying China to take their gas, right? And like, I don't know how sustainable something like that is, or how many projects they can do like that. And of course, I think China is going to want to do as many of those as possible. But again, I think there's this inherent tension between them. And I think that it's something that the U.S. should it want to could play on and um, use as leverage. Julia, I have the last question. So the future, what go into your crystal ball. What happens next? Does Putin leave in 2024? Doesn't he? Where is Russia in 10 years? What's your sense? I think Russia in 10 years looks a lot like Russia now. I keep thinking back to the conversations I was having with people in Moscow who, as the pro-democracy protests were fizzling out and pro-democracy movement ran aground under a wave of political repression. Um, and one pro-Kremlin Duma deputy, who I think is no longer in the Duma, told me, you know, in Russia, leaders don't leave voluntarily. They leave the Kremlin fit, feet first. And Putin's going to leave the Kremlin feet first. And another person told me who was once uh, Putin's advisor and helped him win the first his first election in 2000. He said, when this system collapses, it will collapse in a day. And the system that re replaces it will look exactly like this one. To quote a much smarter person than than I, Michael Idoff, who is former journalist, current film director and screenwriter, you know, he said that basically over the last hundred years, Russia has shown us that it likes one form of government, which is a wide-reaching bureaucracy with a kind of charismatic leader at the top who has a kind of cult of personality around him. And it's always him, right? We had the Tsar with his bureaucracy. We had the Soviet Union and the general secretary with his bureaucracy and cult of personality around him. And then we have Putin with his bureaucracy and the cult of personality around him. And Michael at the time said, you know, you could basically write a New York Times style article around that. And, you know, that's what Russia likes. And that's what Russia is going to keep building for itself. 
no matter what the kind of ideological wrapping is that's put around that. Julie Yaffe, thank you for joining us on Altamar. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So, Peter, I walk out of this interview thinking like somebody from the 1970s and equating political power to military power. She talked about, you know, kind of the interest in using the military, in intelligence, in being strong, in invading other countries and in using its military might uh, for world domination. And it seems kind of retro. I don't know. Retro it is, um, but effective it is too. And, you know, I think one of her biggest points was you don't have to have a huge economy to be influential and powerful. All you have to do is to have sufficient military and intelligence capacities. But most importantly, I think what Julia said is you have to have the willingness to use it in a really smart way. And I think Russia has. I mean, not exactly an uplifting uh, prediction of the future, but one that I think is probably realistic. No, I mean, completely agree. I think um, also with the youth, I think I'm leaving less optimistic than Teastek was, which was that, you know, the youth is changing and might actually have an impact on Russian politics. And I don't think it will be in, in uh, the next few decades, at least. So I guess I'm closing for the very first time. And um, you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. See you all next time. <laughs>